The sermon text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. We read these verses during our second reading this morning about how John the Baptist bore witness about Christ and pointed others to him. As we consider these verses this morning, and we consider the uniqueness of Christ's ministry, one of the things that we could probably relate to is, is the fact that you know, in our society, we have many celebrities. We know many famous people, either on TV or on the radio. Um, I was in Cleveland 20 years ago, and I visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame while I was there. And you know, I visited not so much because I'm into rock and roll, but uh, because it's the main tourist destination in Cleveland, and I think it still is. Um, you might have visited some kind of Hall of Fame. Uh, many professional sports right, each have their Hall of Fame. Perhaps you've also been on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's actually less glamorous than it sounds if you've actually been there. Um, several city blocks we know with Uh, embedded stars in the sidewalks, names of people who have achieved a lot of fame in their industry, either musicians or or actors, basically in the entertainment industry. And, you know, the people that work in these industries, be it in uh, professional sports or in entertainment, there is a longing to achieve entrance into these uh, groups of fame. There's a longing to be included among these groups of great people. In fact, being a part of these groups of great people defines a high level of success and of achievement. And, you know, often when people speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, they are comfortable with putting him in a group of other great people, one among the greats. They are comfortable with saying that, you know, he was one of the great moral and wise teachers in history. Uh, Or they are comfortable with saying that he was one of the great leaders in history. And by saying things like this, they think that they are honoring Jesus by saying that he was one of the greats. Well, the Apostle John, he anticipates this temptation And so he shows us in these verses that Jesus stands alone. See, he's not part of an elite group. Uh, He is unique, and he is superior in every way because he is the only begotten Son of God. See, he's not just one of the greats. He is God. He stands alone. And, and to demonstrate this, John the Apostle, we see, compares Jesus to John the Baptist and to Moses, who were two great leaders in the history of Judaism. And, and the Apostle John demonstrates that Jesus is not just another leader like John the Baptist and like Moses, but he is the unique, the only begotten Son of God, that Jesus stands alone as we see first this morning in verse 15, that only Christ is 
the eternal Son. Verse 15, we read, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, the words recorded here are the words of John the Baptist. It's important to keep that straight because you know, John the Apostle is writing and he's recording the words of John the Baptist, so it's very easy to mix them up. But the words recorded here are the words of John the Baptist, and he is recorded as saying that Jesus outranks him in power and in glory. Now, why is this important for us to, to understand? Well, we need to keep in mind that in Jesus' day, uh, John the Baptist was a very famous uh, person in uh, Judaism. He was very influential among both the Jewish leaders and among the Jewish crowds. We know that even the Roman leaders knew of John the Baptist. Herod liked to listen to him preach. John the Baptist even had disciples who followed him around uh, to learn from him. He was, he was an important guy. In fact, he was so influential as a leader and as a preacher that at one point we read that some Jewish religious leaders asked John if he was the Messiah. Look at uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. It's a passage that we'll study more next week. John chapter 1, beginning of verse 19. Notice as I read the interaction between uh, John and the uh, Jewish religious leaders as they are trying to figure out uh, John's true identity. We read beginning of verse 19, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, do you notice how they were trying to figure John the Baptist out? Because of his personality and, and his charisma, some thought that he might actually be the promised Messiah. But you see, as John very clearly declares in verse 15, he says, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, it's significant to notice what John is saying here. He's saying that Jesus outranks him in every way. Notice that even though John was older than Jesus by about six months, he says very clearly here that Jesus ranks before him. Now, this is significant 
because this is a culture where birth order was critical. The one born first, the elder, was considered of greater importance. But notice what John the Baptist says, that though Jesus was born after him, he was actually before John the Baptist. He existed long before John did because Christ is the eternal Son. This is what makes Jesus, see, not just one among many teachers, uh, one among many leaders and influential people in history. We do want to assert that he was a historical person, but he wasn't just a man. He was God the Son, fully man and fully God. And John the Baptist we see, rightly did not take glory for himself. But John the Baptist knew his role as a prophet, his role to point others not to himself, but to point others to Christ. Because we know that Christ alone is able to save us from our sins. We know that in Judaism, in Jesus' day, Jesus often excoriated the religious leaders because they drew attention to themselves. He often spoke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as those who loved to draw attention to themselves, the way that they dressed and the way that they spoke and the way that they conducted themselves in public. They wanted more and more glory for themselves. You know, if Facebook and Twitter existed in that day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would get all of the likes from their followers, and they would follow and and see how many likes am I getting, how many retweets am I getting. They were really into drawing attention to themselves. But John the Baptist, he, he knows his place, he knows his role, that his role is one who is pointing to the one who is greater, pointing to Christ. John the Baptist rightly pointed people to Christ because Christ alone is the eternal Son. And I want to ask us this morning, are we, like John the Baptist, pointing others to Christ? It is so easy to seek attention for ourselves, to seek our own glory, and to seek our own comfort, and to prioritize ourselves. This morning we can learn from John the Baptist in the way that he knew that there was one coming who was greater than he, the eternal Son of God. And we, like John the Baptist, are to point people to Christ. Secondly, we see that Christ is the only uh, one who provides abundant grace. He is the eternal Son. And secondly, in our passage, we note this morning that what makes him unique is that he alone provides abundant grace. We read in verses 16 through 17 of John chapter 1, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now notice here that the Apostle John now compares Moses with Jesus, because again, Moses was a very well-known person, in Judaism. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Just like John was very well known, Abraham, well, Moses was also a very important 
figure. In fact, Moses was a figure that every single first century Jew would have known. It's like talking to us Americans today about George Washington or to Brits about the Queen. Right? Uh, all first century Jews knew who Moses was. He was a man of great honor, very highly esteemed, very highly revered by the Jews. Moses was known for his faithfulness and his leadership and and his communion with God. We read, for example, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, that inside the tent of meeting, which was the tabernacle, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And in Exodus 34, verse 29, we read that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, that Moses' face was shining because he had been talking with God. See, that Moses had very sweet, very intimate communion with God, that he spoke to God as one speaks with a friend. And Moses was faithful to God. He wasn't sinless, but he was faithful. And so Moses, along with Abraham and King David, were probably the most important figures in first century Judaism. But notice what, what John here compares, as he compares Moses with Jesus, he reveals that Jesus is superior to Moses in every way. He is unique. Why? Well, because, John says, Moses brought the law to God's people, but grace and truth came to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a way of misreading this verse. Misreading by saying that, well, what John is saying is that Moses was bad, the law is bad, the old covenant is bad, Jesus is good. Now, that's a way of misreading this verse. Loved ones, it's important that we see it rightly. That we see verse 17 is not drawing a contrast between law and grace in the sense that the Mosaic law was bad and Jesus is good. It's rather John is stating that both the giving of the law and the arrival of Jesus mark decisive events in the history of salvation. They both had their time and were appointed by God. That through the law, it was good because through it, God revealed his righteous character and his requirements to his people, to Israel. Through Jesus, however, God reveals himself most fully by displaying his gracious mission to meet the demands of the law, the demands for a dark world that has broken his law. And so Jesus' ministry, therefore, is superior to Moses' ministry in the history of redemption because he fulfills everything that the Old Covenant pointed to. See, there was nothing wrong with the law that God gave through Moses. And we say that God gave the law through Moses because God spoke to Moses and and revealed his word, commandments to him on Mount Sinai, as we read in the book of Exodus. There was nothing wrong with the law, be it the moral, ceremonial, or civil law. Holy, righteous, and good, as the Apostle Paul says. 
The law, in fact, teaches us so much about God. It teaches us about his righteousness and, and his holiness. It also, at the same time, reveals our sinfulness. It's like a mirror that we look into and we see all the sinful imperfections of our souls. But when we think about it that way, loved ones, we notice that this is why the law is weak. And this is where it fails us. Because it reveals our sin, but it doesn't change our hearts. See, it tells us what we need to do. It tells us what God requires, but it doesn't help us to do it. It has no power in that sense to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our souls. It says simply, this is the perfection that God requires, as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. And it's a perfection that God reveals, but it's a perfection that you and I are powerless to attain on our own. The law says, do this and live, but we can't do it. We can't obey perfectly. St. Augustine, in reflecting on this, he said, the law threatened, but it did not bring aid. It commanded, but did not heal. It revealed our weakness, but did not provide strength. Among the laws that God gave to Israel through Moses were the ceremonial laws. And among the law of God, these ceremonial laws were laws that we know dealt with the sacrifices and with worship. And even as as God was showing Israel the perfection that he required, through the ceremonial laws, he was also teaching Israel that he would cleanse their sin fully and finally through a sacrifice. And when we think about it that way, loved ones, this is why the ministry of Jesus is superior. Because he's not just the lamb that takes away sin for a time, but we read in the scriptures that he takes away all the sins of his people for all time. And so Christ, the truth, the one to whom all the old covenant sacrifices and and ceremonial laws pointed to, we read in scripture that he came in the fullness of time and he accomplished our salvation. He accomplished it by fulfilling the law that condemned us. The law, the requirements that revealed our sin, but that was powerless to change us. He came, he fulfilled the law, and we read in Scripture that when we trust in his atoning work, we receive grace. We receive his unmerited favor toward sinners. A.W. Pink explains some of the ways then that grace is better than law. Pink says, the law revealed what is in people, revealed that we are sinful. Grace reveals what is in God, that he is love. Law demanded righteousness and perfection from God's people. Grace brings righteousness and perfection to God's people. Law sentences a living person to die because we are all lawbreakers. Grace brings a dead person to life. Law tells us what we must do for God, what God requires of us. 
But grace tells us what Christ has done for us. And as we think about the wonders of God's amazing grace, loved ones, notice how John describes the grace that is ours in Christ. He writes there in verse 16 that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. See, John is pointing out here that God's grace toward us in Christ has no limit. That Christ is full of grace and he grants that grace toward others in abundance, toward those who believe. And by grace, he is referring to his graciousness, his loving kindness toward those whom he has chosen. Beloved ones, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, as we think about this idea of the fullness of Christ abounding to us, grace upon grace being poured out upon us. It's a beautiful picture. It it speaks to one of the fears that we all have. The fear that God might not forgive my sins. That perhaps I'm, I'm not a true believer. Perhaps I'm not saved. Loved ones, are you feeling that way this morning? Are you thinking, I can't uh, be forgiven, especially since God knows what I've done. He knows the way that I've lived my life. You may be going through a particularly difficult season of life at the moment, perhaps through an illness or a trial that is testing your faith. You may be wondering, will this thing break me? Will this thing wreck my faith? Perhaps you're unsure about whether or not you will endure, asking, is there enough grace for me in this season of life? Loved ones, when we come to God through Christ, we come to the one we read who is full of grace, overflowing with grace, and who grants us his grace in abundance. That's the, that's the word picture that John wants us to see here as he writes that we've received from Christ's fullness, from his abundance. We've received grace upon grace, and it's literally translated grace replacing grace. It's like when you hold a cup under a running faucet, a faucet that's going at high volume, and you look at the water in that cup, and that that cup is overflowing, but the water is constantly being replenished. And it's overflowing, but it's constantly being replenished. That's the word picture here. It's flowing toward us from Christ's abundance. Have you ever seen a, a great waterfall? Years ago, got to visit Niagara Falls, and you stand there, and it's an amazing sight to see. Pictures don't do it justice. You, you stand, and you watch the water falling. It's a huge volume of water. And second after second, minute after minute, the waters continue to gush, to pour over the falls. And you start to think, is this thing ever going to run out? It can't keep going like this. That's the image that we need to have when we think of God's graciousness toward us in Christ. It's grace that is abundant, flowing, unending, unlimited. So John points out in these verses that 
So we see Christ is superior because he is the eternal Son of God. He's superior because he provides abundant grace. doesn't just tell us what God requires, but he fulfills the requirements and he grants us the ability to love and to serve him. And third, we see in our passage that Christ is unique. He stands alone because he alone reveals God. In verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As we noted earlier, God uh, spoke with Moses as one speaks with a friend. There was this close fellowship and communion between Moses and God, but at one point, Moses asked to see God's glory. God said to him, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is because if God were to display his full glory to a sinful human being, it would be destroyed, vaporized. John points out here, though, that though we, we cannot see God in his spirit form glory, Christ has revealed God in his incarnation. That Christ as, has, as we uh, read here in verse 18, Christ has made him known. Now the Greek word for made known is exegesis. And you might be uh, familiar with that word. It's actually a, exegeto in Greek, but it's the word where we get the word exegesis, and it describes how theologians uh, read the Bible, that when we exegete the Bible, what we're seeking to do is to draw out of the Bible its true meaning, Uh, not to read into the Bible what we want it to say. That's eisegesis. That's bad. But we study each passage in its context, seeking to draw out what the scriptures mean so that we might interpret them and understand them rightly. John says that Jesus exegeted the Father, explained the Father, revealed the Father so that we might know God. Now Richard Phillips explains, he says this is what Jesus does. He interprets and explains and exposits God to us. Jesus gives a full revelation of God and what he taught and what he did. To know what God is like and what God intends for the world, we need to study Jesus Christ. He is the Word. God speaks most plainly and eloquently in Jesus. This is what we most greatly need and what we should all most frequently seek. To know God through Jesus Christ. As Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 3, he said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, loved ones, because Christ, we know, not only speaks the word of God to us, he is the word of God, as John explained in the beginning of his gospel. He not only communicates, but he is the very embodiment of God's word. Every other prophet in the history of redemption came preaching about the word, 
came pointing to Jesus, but when Jesus came, he himself was and is the good news for his people. He is the embodiment of the good news. He doesn't simply announce a message. He is the message in his very person. And the implication is that if we do not know him, if we do not know him and love him, then we cannot know God. Because the only way that we can truly know God is through Jesus Christ. And this is why, friends, we, we need to be passionate about Jesus Christ. Not just passionate about morality and making sure that morals are being upheld in our nation. Not just passionate about doing good works, but passionate about exegeting Christ to others, pointing people to him, as John the Baptist did. On my uh, last flight to Philadelphia, I was uh, seated next to a Jewish rabbi, and uh, she had her Hebrew Bible, and she was reading from the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, to be more specific. She was reading it in the Hebrew text, and she was, you know, I read Hebrew very slowly, I could see how fast she was reading it because of the way her finger was moving across the page. And as she was reading, I noticed what she was reading, and so we struck up a conversation. And as uh, we, we talked, it was amazing to, to see that as much as she thought that she knew about God, about how God revealed himself in the Old Testament... Uh, She did not truly know God because she did not know Jesus Christ. See, it was clear in our conversation, which went out on for a couple of hours at least, as the the flight took uh, several hours, it was clear in our conversation that Jesus remained a stumbling block for her. He was a rock of offense. And while Christ remains a stumbling block for many, the scriptures assures us, loved ones, that for those who know him, he gives eternal life. He gives grace upon grace. See, this is is the good news of verse 18. The good news is that if we know Jesus, loved ones, we, we know the answer to life's greatest question. The answer to life's most important question We know the greatest being in the universe. We know God because we know Jesus. Friends, you and I can say that we truly know God because we know and we love Jesus Christ. Do you realize that this morning, that the greatest being in existence, the triune God, has truly revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and we know him? And we love him. And the promise is that we will be with him for eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That in it, we see how Christ is the sum and the substance of all of your promises in the old covenant. We pray, Lord, that we would know him more and more, that we would 
know him as Savior and as Lord, that we would know him as brother and as friend, as Savior and as shepherd. Lord, that we would know Christ intimately and truly. We thank you for the way that he has revealed your glory and your grace. And we pray that especially during seasons of difficulty in our lives, that we would rest in the fact that we know and that we are known by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.